my transactions have to matter to me. Whether that's with my physical environment in my home office or dressing my little girls in the morning. That's a transaction, but it has to be one that's meaningful and that matters. And so by deliberately understanding that I'm always in a transaction, then I can make it matter and not just have it be an irrelevant part of my day. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence, broadcasting from Ventura County, California. And yes, we're still here. (laughs) This podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. We do want to take a moment and thank all of you who have asked us about our offices, our staff, our faculty, and local members throughout the Thomas Fire, currently one of the largest fires in the California history. And yes, we are here. And yes, we are in the middle of it. And yes, we are all safe. So again, thank you for all of your well wishes and concern. As Canada's authority on cultural reconstruction in complex emergencies, Dr. Sarah Jane Maharg is the principal and founder of Peace and Conflict Planners, often called upon by the Canadian forces to help stabilize war-torn or post-disaster-affected communities. She's authored two books, one on navigating the military and humanitarian divide, and the other on measuring effectiveness, success, and understanding in peace operations and crisis management, a work endorsed by the 2008 Nobel Peace Prize laureate Marti Atasari. Her studies with Influence Ecology taught her about mitigating the cost she is to others in social exchanges, specifically that persistence can be high cost, both to herself and those she's persistent with, and that persistence is not always warranted or called on to achieve her aims. This episode's Guru Talk is from a portion of the Fundamentals of Transaction program where Vice President Drew Knowles and co-founder Kirkland Tibbles address how unaware we are to the cost we impose on others in our transactions. Well, Dr. Sarah Jane Maharg, I want to welcome you to the Influence Ecology podcast and give you the opportunity to introduce yourself. If you would, please say a little bit about who you are, where you live, and what you do. Thanks so much, John. It's a pleasure to be having this discussion with you today. So my name is Sarah Jane Maharg, and I live in a small town near Ottawa, Canada. And I'm a mom. I have two little girls, happily married, and I'm a university professor. And I work very closely with the Canadian Forces and the Department of National Defense in Canada. And you first participated in Influence Ecology how long ago? About two and a half years ago, I was registered for the program uh, Fundamentals of Transaction, and I was invited into the ecology by my older sister, Angela Mahark. Yeah, she's been working with us for quite some time. One of the things that I'd love to do to start is to give people a sense of who you are professionally, to give people a sense of your authority, your experience. 
I'm frequently called upon by the Canadian forces to help them with issues related to post-conflict reconstruction. And for those of you who don't understand what that term is, it's really rebuilding communities after warfare. And because I have a focus on more of the sociological aspects of reconstruction, like the identity and culture issues, the people issues, I help the Canadian forces adjust their plans and their programs to bring more benefit to the people that are affected by our interventions. And I've also worked very closely with the U.S. military working through some of those identity and culture issues related to reconstruction and the communities that we're intending to help with this work. Does that mean that you advise them about social behavior? Can you say a little bit more about it? Sure. When I originally embarked on my doctoral studies and my research, I went over to Bosnia, and this was kind of mid-90s, late-90s after the ceasefire, and I was focused on the destruction of cultural properties and what the destruction of those properties did to people and the identities that they held. And what my research found was that groups of people they have a heightened awareness of their identity. And when particular things are taken away from them, uh, people, places, practices, routines, when those places are intentionally targeted during conflict, their identity is weakened to such an extent that they often leave a place and never want to go back. And so when I work with the Canadian forces and the US military, what we typically look at is how to rebuild specific places to create a positive behavior and attitudinal change in a group of people so they can feel confident and secure in moving back into an area, practicing not only their ethnic routines and cultural practices, but their religious practices and what that means in places. So there's a deep connection of what I do between people, their places and their identity and how all of that works together. So that's what I I focus on. That's fascinating. I'm fascinated. I have so many questions I want to ask you. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's really the appropriate place. I'm just imagining as you were talking, I was imagining some of the, the objects that we sort of wrap our identity around. I was thinking, my goodness, what would happen to the United States if we lost the Statue of Liberty, for example? It's a wonderful case study. It's, it's absolutely true. And I've walked down that path before making plans about what to do if a particular icon, a landmark that is so loaded with meaning is intentionally destroyed, what to do to reconstruct it. If we do, who is it intended for? If we do, what materials are used? Is it supposed to be exactly how it was before? And for what purposes? So these are the questions that we have to ask when we're reconstructing communities after warfare. Not to jump onto a different track of conversation, but oftentimes when we go and we intend to reconstruct places after warfare, we often address what I call the wrong end of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If we're going to go to Syria, are we looking at helping a community self-actualize again at the top of the pyramid? Or do we look at the lower end of the pyramid, which is just rebuilding and sustaining the basic human needs? And where does reconstruction fit into that, especially of cultural properties, landmarks, like sites like you just described? In the work that you do, do you focus on the bottom part of the pyramid and work with people to establish some of those things? Or do you start somewhere else? Well, unfortunately, the mindset is that when we intervene in places that have experienced war, we're going after the top end of the pyramid. We're, we're going after helping communities make decisions again. We're helping them get on track, be part of the, na- the international community, be part of that global commons. But really, the, the fact is, is that community 
both from the individual right up to the state level, the mindset is at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's been such an incredible trauma created in that group of people that we need to address the pyramid from the opposite end. But we often jump over the bottom bits of the pyramid in reconstruction, we go after the top. And it's just not an appropriate perspective to take. Makes complete sense. I do want to say, just in listening to you a little bit, that you're an intellectual person, you're quite studied and gifted and smart and, and all of those kinds of things. And my question to you, first and foremost, is how did you end up studying here? I know your sister introduced you, but what attracted you to studying with influence ecology? What were you out to accomplish? I started having babies. And when I started having babies, I put my career on hold. And I intentionally did that in order to raise what I call global citizens. I wanted to focus on mothering in a way that was a fully authentic commitment. And that meant really putting my career on hold and stopping those commitments in a, in a really meaningful way. And when I was kind of what I would call through the kind of through the woods a little bit on, on having my babies and they didn't necessarily need me every minute of the time, I accepted my sister's offer to learn more about the training. And as I said, I kind of put everything on hold to have my kids. And I had a prior education in training and personal development and the frameworks and systems of entrepreneurialism and how to build an enterprise and how to set up my career. And I was very kind of hardwired into adult education. And I knew that I needed the next step. I needed the next step to launch me into my next 10 or 15 years of my career. And that's why I became engaged so fully with the offer my sister presented to me about the training. And when you first began to study here, was there something that really grabbed your attention or had you rattled a bit uh, about where you were or where you might be headed? Or did you just find it generally a useful tool to begin to support you and what was next? Well, when I was going through the training, it was a moment after moment of aha moments, as people say, or realizations about how I had been being in my career, my family. And specifically, one of the things I remember the most was this idea about being a high cost person. And I have always been a very persistent person, John. I worked hard. I was told in certain respects that I couldn't do certain things. So I worked even harder to accomplish them. I pursued opportunities. I sometimes at all costs. And what I realized was that that behavior that was a high cost to me and the energy output and potentially whatever I was going for was maybe not aligned with really the trajectory I was on, but my behavior may have been high cost for other people that I was in an exchange with. And that was one of my moments of realization was how high cost am I being? Not only as a mother, as a parent to young children, to, as a spouse, as a child to my aging parents, as a sister in my career, in my businesses, in my entrepreneurial pursuits. And so that really changed my perspective on levels of perseverance and what I needed to go after that was more accurately aligned with the path I'd set for myself. Let's take a second for those who may not quite understand what we mean by high cost. In your own words, what would you say we mean by being high cost? 
personally, high cost is not letting something go, being dogged, overly dogged about uh, pursuing somebody to schedule a phone call, being overly difficult with my spouse on particular parenting issues, when really all that was required is a conversation. As we say, you and I are always transacting. So there are all kinds of little exchanges that we're involved with all the time. And those exchanges have both value and cost to them. They are both valuable and costly. I look at my phone when it rings. In fact, just moments ago as you're talking, my phone vibrated and I looked down and there was a text. And the text was from someone who, to me, sometimes produces more cost than value. I'll say it that way, right? <laughs> yep. And so you and I are constantly, constantly making little judgments about the cost and the value of transactions. The little ones, the, hey, do you have a second? Can you talk to me for just a minute? Or even the cost, as we talk about, of someone walking into your office and saying, do you need any help with anything? Now burdening me with the cost of coming up with something to do for that person who's looking to help, right? So there's all kinds of ways in which you and I are naive to the cost and, and the value of the exchanges that make up our everyday lives. So when we talk about being high cost, many people are naive to the cost of their transactions, how they transact, the way that they pursue something, how they move through transactions, all that kind of stuff. So having said that, you talked about persistence as a kind of cost, which I think is fantastic, that sometimes persistence can be high cost, both to you and to those that you're being persistent with. Did you find in your studies here that there were other ways that you found yourself to be high cost or that you noticed where you're naive to the cost of yourself and transactions? I was naive about something that I call my youth. And John, I'm 46 years old now. I'm not a young person, but I have this idea that my youth will somehow cause people to notice me or acknowledge my ideas as being innovative. And I think that was an aha moment about being a high cost, not only to me, but to the people that I'm transacting with, because it's actually irrelevant. And it wasn't serving me or anybody else. And when it comes back to this idea about persevering at all costs, I learned to persevere as a young person. And I put that into practice in many, many different ways. And in the training, I learned something about deliberate practice. And I was able to coordinate my efforts, which had previously been categorized as persistence and, and persevering in better framework called deliberate practice and understanding what needed to get done within a transactional cycle that would actually produce results. Because persevering on its own and being persistent on its own isn't necessarily tracking towards a specific outcome or results. It's just being overly attentive to certain details and being a dogged about achieving them. But to what end? So when you were in the program, you discovered that particular kind of naivete and now, what guides you in the satisfaction of your conditions of life? I learned how to decline. And what I mean by that is I have had a lot of career opportunities offered to me. And 
in conversations with my husband, his reaction to all of these opportunities is to accept, accept, accept at all costs. And I was like that before this training as well. And even though I may not have been ideally suited to accept the opportunity or the invitation or even prepared to fulfill on the acceptance of an opportunity that came my way, I, I still would accept them at all costs. And I learned, and I have learned since, to decline if I'm not ready to fulfill on a potential opportunity. And in fact, it just happened last month. A Canadian government parliamentary committee on national defense contacted me. It's the most high-level committee in government that discusses national defense issues. And they contacted me to testify as an expert witness at one of their meetings. And I declined. I declined on the basis that I was not only was my schedule in a little bit of a state of overwhelm, but at that particular time, but I was not prepared to speak as a specialist on the topic they were asking me about. But what I also learned to do with your training is to keep the opportunity open through a decline. And then what happened was, is I provided my areas of specialization to the clerk who had contacted me with my decline and leaving the opportunity open for future opportunities. Keep me on the list for invitations if these other topics come up. Sure enough, I was invited and fulfilled on the invitation yesterday, and I was able to do that in my area of specialization and fulfill on bringing value that fulfilled their needs as the committee. And it was a very, very positive experience. If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. I have a question for you, too, as a producer. You identify that personality. You must identify with that. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And so for our audience, in your own words, what is a producer personality? A producer personality typically works with checklists and to-do lists and can live in the objective world. We're task-oriented people. We fulfill on plans. We bring things into manifestation. We make ideas real and we can complete projects. Excellent. So let's go back to cost for just a moment. If you were going to give people three things they might do to address their cost in a transaction, what might you tell them to go do? Well, the first thing would be Be upfront with your aims that you're attempting to satisfy through the transaction. So what I've learned is that to reduce my cost, I tell people upfront what I need from them or from the transaction in general. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to communicate clearly about the needs and requirements that you require in order to fulfill on a transaction. So what I've been doing is... I say what I need from the other party up front. 
So it's not just saying what I need from the transaction, the specifics of what I need to fulfill on something, whether it's information or documents or access to something. That has been helping a lot, and I recommend that. A third thing is to complete a transaction by communicating whether or not something is actually complete. And I find this very useful too. So what I do is I actually say when I think something's complete based on what I've agreed to with the other party. And oftentimes what comes back to me is, no, we're not complete. We didn't do this. Then we're on the same page again. So those three points, I think, would be the things to do. That's so great. I think what's so lovely about that is how quickly that was available to you in your mind. That wouldn't have been so quick for me. I'm an inventor, a personality, and you're a producer personality. So I was in some ways testing you a little bit to see, well, I wonder how fast you can come up with three to-dos. It was brilliant. It was very, very brilliant. I think it's a great demonstration of the difference in personality. I was just doing an interview with someone else, a different personality altogether. And the tone of a producer podcast is sometimes very different. In some cases, it's been amazing to interview a producer and ask them a question to which they will give a very black and white answer, as they would, of course. I will ask the same question to an inventor, and I'll get a 10-minute conversation on the context for the question and perhaps why that question matters so much to the future of humanity. It's so different, but I'm grateful that you and I have personality to rely on in conversations that we can address one another, knowing that I come from inventor and you come from producer and how we might coexist in this conversation. I'm wondering for you if there's any kind of impact that our study here at Influence Ecology and our study on personality Has there any impact that's had on the work that you do and how you relate to people in some of the situations in which you deal? Absolutely. Learning about the personality types was a new framework for me, although I had understood that there are certain types of personalities and that these have characteristics. It was just how your study frames these things becomes what I call applied theory. I've heard about it in theory for many, many years in my academic pursuits and in my in my studies. But the applied theoretical approach to being able to deal with these other personality types in meetings or in relationships or in health matters has been so critical to me. One of the things that producer type personalities deal with almost minute by minute is this concept of time. Time is of the essence. If you've ever heard that said, it's probably a producer that said it, (laughs) unless it's a lawyer who says it at the end of their email. Time is of the essence. And I found that I have these ticks. They're not real ticks, John, but they're ticks. Like I'll tap my fingers on the table when somebody's what I think over-talking an idea the inventors in my life, my sister and my spouse being two of them. I'm surrounded by inventors. And I look at my watch, or I would be concerned with getting through the agenda. So I'm in a very efficient, effective person, and I run meetings that way. But the training itself has allowed me to understand different concepts of time that the personality types hold. That perspective has been very uh, valuable in acknowledging people and how they communicate and what they want to share and how they want to do that is often framed by their concept of time. And my time is immediate and of the essence. And 
I need to lay my time framework aside in order to value other people's contributions. It's very well said. I appreciate the, the application, as you say, the applied theory of what we do. We say that you're always transacting. And throughout our program and the Fundamentals of Transaction program, we're constantly reminding people that they're always transacting and that they need to become aware of the transactions all around them. And uh, in the notes that you've offered, you said that you can't deny the facticity of that you're always transacting. How has it impacted you to come to understand that you're always transacting? It makes my exchanges and my interchanges with, with the people around me more meaningful. It, on one hand, when I first learned that concept, it depressed me because I thought, oh, I'm always in an exchange. There's, I always have to get something out of the exchanges. That's kind of how I took it. And then as I've been studying, I realized that that is not the intention of that framework or that paradigm. It's that there is something happening of meaning around us at all times. And I've talked to you a bit about that I focus on reconstruction. And I almost take that into the granular approach to my everyday life, this idea that I'm always transacting. I'm always building. And my focus is on building what matters. So my transactions have to matter to me, whether that's with my physical environment in my home office or dressing my, my little girls in the morning. That's a transaction. It has to be one that's meaningful and that matters. And so by deliberately understanding that I'm always in a transaction, then I can make it matter and not just have it be an irrelevant part of my day. It's very, very well said. I'm wondering a little bit about the through line of your work here. When any one person comes here to influence ecology, there's all kinds of things that they find out that they may be naive to. There are many things that they discover they weren't thinking accurately about. They begin to use our process, our systematic step-by-step move through all of the steps that we offer to see where they're naive, to see where there's gaps, to see there's something missing and so forth. So the through line for you has been what? What have you discovered about the through line of your journey here at Influence Ecology? I want to build what matters from my daily schedule with my family and uh, related to my career and my health practices to working and relating to my aging parents. So what I've learned is that there's a essence to the conditions of life. And you've mentioned some of them, health, money, career, family, sociality, politics, legacy, money, those components, those conditions of life have an essence to them. And I now am very aware of building satisfaction in each of those areas that can create a life that's really more than satisfactory, but that satisfies me as a person who wants to go for great things. I want to work on big projects. I'm working on big projects. I want to affect change in the world, but not naively. I don't want to bring naivete to that conversation. I want to do it accurately with the right team, with the right help, working towards the right purposes through the systems and frameworks that we have available to us. And in that endeavor, when you're building what matters, what are you mostly confronting or dealing with about your own ability to build what matters or about your place in those exchanges? Having the right help 
has been brought to my attention. <laughs> As a producer type personality, I pretty much think I can do everything by myself. And producers, at least the ones that I know, often will work alone and not on teams. And this may just be relevant to all of the personality types, except perhaps the performers. But working alone is not how I build what matters. <laughs> and I've talked about some of those lofty goals, uh, some of those big projects. Reconstruction can't be achieved by me in Syria. It's an important endeavor. And what I know is that the right help is available. And part of the entire process of building what matters is to secure the right help with the right people who think the right way on the right topics, who are aligned and can fill in the gaps that I cannot fill or I should not fill. And I always invite people to, to do a little bit of a soapbox moment here. Is there anything about that and what you point to in your notes about your own soapbox, about people moving as individuals? Yes. When I originally became involved in peace and conflict studies, I was a naive young person who didn't know much about the international community and how states interact with one another. And peace is always known as the not-for-profit industry. The peace sector is not even considered an industry. It's a sector where people volunteer and they go off and they do these wonderful projects around the world and they do good and they come home and they feel great. And yet war is for profit. Conflict and wars are fought, arms are sold, belligerents are armed and supported, and these conflicts continue. And they're often money-making endeavors for the people who are involved in the industrial side of it. Back in the day when I was just coming out of school and I was interested in the peace and conflict sector and um, non-governmental organizations and how to make change in the world, I realized to myself that this is not a volunteer effort. People who work for peace should be paid. People who work to make the world a better place should be paid. And yes, we have the UN system. And yes, we have certain organizations that pay well and, uh, and they do great work. But in general, we, we definitely think that peace is a not-for-profit enterprise. And so I created Peace and Conflict Planners, the company that I own, as a way to provide a venue for building the peace industry as a counterpoint to the war-for-profit, conflict-for-profit industry and have infused the company with uh, new technologies and research projects that aim to bring systems and frameworks to that sector so people can get paid for their work and people don't have to volunteer anymore. And those young people who go off and volunteer can actually come back and pay their visa bills and their student debt. And when we look at how all of this works together, we're quite naive in how we think states and the international community function amongst themselves. And back to this concept of high cost that we've discussed today, states themselves are made up of individuals. States are made up of groups. Uh, state structures are made up of the people that produce the state. And those people can be biologically agitated. They can fall into one of the personality groups and they have transactional characteristics. And so states themselves actually embody those characteristics of the people that make up the state. And I think we're sometimes quite naive in how we think these states interact with one another. And states, just like people, can be high cost. And so in today's complex world and how politics has become even more complex and how state relations work, I think it's important to consider that states are not all-powerful, all all-knowing entities that can 
solve problems, but we have to treat them for what they are. So that's all I wanted to say on that. And for what they are as in individuals. That's right. Very good. And the books that you've, you've written, two books. Yes. Tell us just a little bit about those books and how they're related to what you do. So the first book is called Helping Hands and Loaded Arms, Navigating the Military and Humanitarian Space. That's a long title for a simple problem, which is when the defense sector, the people who do development and the diplomats get into the field together to intervene in another country's affairs, either through conflict or reconstruction, the spectrum of operations. Those groups, those stakeholders often can't work well together. They don't understand the group identity that they're dealing with. They don't understand the personality characteristics of who they're dealing with. So they have to come and practice and exercise and, and simulate operations before they go to the field. So that particular book works on some of those identity-based characteristics that can inform political decisions, political will, and what happens in the field to help, again, the people who are the recipients of these programs and projects uh, that we intend for them. The second book is called Measuring What Matters in Peace Operations and Crisis Management. And when I originally was developing the concept for that book, I was struck with this the fact that at that time the U.S. had just invaded Iraq and then were dealing with some of the reconstruction issues and how costly the reconstruction endeavor ended up being because of some of the ways that the invasion occurred. There was a process by which the governments wanted to measure the effectiveness of the money that was spent in Iraq. And this then in kind of infiltrated the Canadian government uh, way of thinking, and we became obsessed with measuring the effectiveness of these operations. So this book deals with both the qualitative and the quantitative components of measuring whether or not our interventions actually are successful hmm. or not. And the different groups, the different stakeholders that I mentioned before, the defense sector, the development sector, the diplomats, the NGOs, the humanitarians, the private sector, they all come at measurement with a completely different perspective, a completely different worldview. And so the book kind of picks apart both the quantitative and the qualitative components. So not only are you producing numbers to prove to your taxpayers that the money was well spent, but you're also producing a narrative that can be uh, weighed and balanced to make better decisions as lessons are learned. So that's what that book encompasses. That's fantastic. All right. There are so many things I think we could continue to talk about. I find uh, so much of what you're addressing fascinating on so many levels. I, mean, I would love to spend a little time <laughs> asking some additional questions about your work and what you do. Is there any last things that you would like to say that you haven't said so far? I would say that my training with influence ecology has affected my career in a very, very positive way, John. Perhaps even more important to me is it's deeply affected the way that I parent my daughters. Hmm. When I was raised by my parents, I never really thought that they knew really what they were doing. <laughs> 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 they were really good at it, but there are certain things that were somewhat questionable. And of course, having that as an example of my life of what not to do allows me to change my behavior with my children. Now, I am not a perfect parent because there's no such thing as one, but influence ecology has actually given me an incredible toolbox to manage and mitigate some of the obstacles 
that I could foresee were coming up with my parenting skills. The lack of parenting skills, the lack of objectivism I have about it. My husband is very subjective. He's an inventor type personality. So how he approaches parenting is not how I approach parenting. And although we share the same value system, the training with influence ecology has allowed me to broaden out my perspective and allows me to very much consider my transactions with my girls as building what matters. That's fantastic. All right. Well, Dr. Sarah Jane Maharg, it has been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I am fascinated. I plan on going to look at the books that you've written. I didn't know you were an author until I got the information here, and I really look forward to going and having a read. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think what I'd like to say in closing in getting to know you over the last year or so, I've gotten to know some things about you today that I had no idea about. But I certainly before that have enjoyed getting to know you. You're a fabulous, fun, very personable, intelligent, studied, committed human being. And I I find you fascinating to know. And I'm grateful that we've crossed paths. It's been a pleasure. It's so generous of you to say those things. Thank you, John. Again, this episode's Guru Talk is from a portion of the Fundamentals of Transaction program where Vice President Drew Knowles and co-founder Kirkland Tibbles address the cost and value that we are in transactions and how often we're unaware to the cost we are or the cost we impose upon others when we're involved in exchanges. Every action and inaction builds an identity, a career and shapes the perceived value or cost that you are to others. The way you want to be approaching this throughout the program and what you're paying attention to, what you're observing, how you're noticing those around you, is that there are so many ways that you can produce an identity, a career, a way people know you for a certain kind of help out there in the marketplace. And all of your actions or your inactions are building that identity and they're shaping how people perceive the value you offer or the cost that you are. What we want to head you towards is orienting yourself to are you a highly valued, reliable and low cost offer of help? Or are you high cost, unreliable and frustrating? in certain areas regarding your offer of help. Personally, and and so many of our advanced folk, we've been through so many iterations of examining this and seeing in different ways where we were a little costly. It reminds me of the early kind of conversations, Drew, we used to have about, and we used the example of people not recognizing that the simple act of asking a question produces cost. At Influence Ecology, if you come to many events, you're going to have a tough time getting the salt passed to you at the table with others because we use this example quite a bit. Asking someone to pass the salt produces a breakdown. Now, we don't relate to that particular simple act uh, in any way like it produces a breakdown, but if you think about it for a second, the person on the end of the table who's in a dialogue with somebody else, for example, has to stop what they're doing, put their utensils down, pay attention to you and the question that you're asking in order to pick up the salt and get it to you. And while it's a custom and it's familiar and there's really no big problem, 
that in and of itself actually stops the current action and produces a break in action. It is a breakdown, even though it may not be a highly consequential one that affects a specific condition of life in some important way and stop the presses. It's worth looking at, and maybe this explains why, over the course of days, people who don't recognize the cost of asking you questions, they don't recognize the cost of asking even what may appear to be helpful questions. They don't recognize the cost associated with doing what they're asked to do first before coming up with a bunch of good ideas if they're an inventor personality or worrying about going the extra mile for relationships if they're a performer or handing you 13 extra good ideas for things to get done along the way and doing two extra things that weren't needed to be done if they're producers or asking questions about proof and evidence in things that you've already handled if they're judges. They're just simply unaware, and part of what you'll be working through in this program is simply an awareness of whether or not you are a high-cost transactor. I was a, a young man in business in Texas with a group of guys that made this painfully clear to me early on. When I was rejected as part of a business offer because while I was friendly and personable and a really great guy, I was high-cost, a real wake-up call. And for some of you, you need to be that wake-up call for people in your life. You need to help them recognize the commitments that you have with them in particular transactions. And a commitment to be low-cost is something to engage with the folks that you are attempting to work with on a day-to-day -day basis. And some of you are putting up with people in your life that you need to handle. You're putting up with people that are really costly in areas of your life. You're in transactions with folks that have long been needed to be reinvented or exhausted. You know it, and chances are they know it. And this is part of what we mean when we say you're always transacting. And by the way, how you transact with influence ecology is a great mirror for you to determine and to tell how it is to transact, how you transact out there in the marketplace. Because how you transact here over a six-month period of time with the number of things we're going to be throwing at you, the number of buttons that we're installing right now to push later, will be a great place for you to get help in learning what it's like to transact with you. And if you're smart, you'll engage. In our next episode, we interview Barker Rinker CCAT Architecture CEO Craig Balk and hear a great case study about the elements of value. What is value? When I think of scarcity, I think of utility, and I think of that combination in terms of value, for me that epitomizes one of the biggest challenges that I've been trying to work on over the last 15 years. And so my takeaway from that is I am the kind of person, and I believe that architects in general, if I can classify them so boldly as to say, is we believe that we are great problem solvers. And the arrogance that we have is that we believe that we can solve any problem. So one of the giant takeaways when trying to solve these different things that Influence Ecology has presented to us is that we cannot do it alone. And we believe that we can. And it's taken a long time for me to ask for help and to actually recognize that you're not going to get there without asking for help. And my thread of thought is going to be that sense of value and how do you personally define it. It's this idea that whatever we do, we have to look at the utility that we're providing, who is it for, 
And then in terms of that idea of scarcity, how are you doing it in such a way that is going to be very specific to your clientele, very specific to your own personal needs, and how will that combine to be a message of value, both for you and for who you're working with? If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with others. You can share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you get your podcast. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, please take a moment, go to iTunes, and let us know what you think. You can also offer ratings and review on our website for each podcast episode. Thank you for listening to another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank Dr. Mahark for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with her and links to her books, websites, and special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. Our staff includes episode producer, editor, and music supervisor Jason Kelly, also with Tyson Crandall and Carol Gregory.